This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Avi Stamen, co-host of the Scholarly Communication podcast. When I'm not podcasting, I'll dedicate my time to my family, riding my bike in the mountains, and running my company, Academic Language Experts. Academic Language Experts, or ALE for short, is an author services company dedicated to helping scholars elevate their manuscripts prior to publication and reviewing grant proposals to receive competitive research funding. Today, I am delighted to be joined by Gita Manaktala, Editorial Director at MIT Press. Gita oversees MIT Press's book acquisitions and works closely with MIT's other acquisitions editors. She acquires books in selected areas of information science and communication, and also works with the editors of the Information Policy and Strong Ideas series. Her interests include critical data studies, journalism and news, network communication, privacy, and access to knowledge. Gita, thank you very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me, Avi. It's a pleasure to be here. Great. So before we start, I have to know, um, what does critical data studies mean? Critical data studies is an approach to um, data, a data-driven world, which is the world we're living in these days, where we're all of us generating a lot of data just by going through our normal existence, um, but also to it's an approach to understanding scientific and research data as well that understands the full context um, of data and tries not to isolate them entirely from that context. So it's a way of recontextualizing data um, and understanding that data is a human creation. It's a human artifact. It's something that um, reflects people. It's not something we can universalize entirely. You know, it's it's so interesting that you that you say that, and I know I'm I'm already going off script, and we're only a minute in here. But uh, you know, I, I I've been thinking for a while about what the ramifications of moving to this sort of data driven world are, and what prices we pay as a result. I mean, I think we all agree that data can be a very empowering um, to help us make really informed decisions and to and to have access to knowledge. So no one's going to argue with that. But mm-hmm. I wonder, you know, if the historians will look back in 20, 30 years and say, well, you know, what were the blind spots that maybe we have um, by, you know, kind of 
putting all of our faith into data and almost making, you know, our, our you know, and, and what are what are some of the maybe human um, repercussions of that? It, it sort of reminds me of like, you know, the difference between quantitative and qualitative research and like the argument for qualitative maybe being, you know, kind of um, not heard as loudly in recent years. That's just my my feeling on on the subject. I think that's exactly right. Um, blind spots are what we're worried about with um, with with a data driven world, and, and critical data studies helps to make us aware of those blind spots and those potential pitfalls. Because, as you say, da- data can be really, really powerful for producing knowledge and understanding of how things work in the world. But we need to understand their limitations as well. Of course. Okay. Hopefully, we'll we'll circle back around and get to dive into that a little bit more. But I want to. I want to go back to the beginning um, and for you to tell us a little bit about yourself um, and specifically within the context of academic publishing. Is this something that you kind of, you know, uh, knew from a, little, a young age that this was something you were going to do? Is it something you fell into by mistake? Maybe tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field. Sure. Um, well, yes. Well, I was a, an English major in college and I was definitely a book person. I spent a lot of time hanging around in libraries and bookstores um, and being distracted by all, all the books that I could possibly potentially read um, and, and avoiding my homework by, um, you know, perusing books. So um, I, I was always interested in publishing. And when I was in college, I took a semester off and I worked for a trade publisher Called Grove Press, which is a pretty famous press um, in New York City, founded by a visionary publisher named Barney Rossett, who published all the beats and who published a lot of um, theater and drama. And he published, um, he fought the court case for Lady Chatterley's Lover. He was a a brilliant visionary um, radical publisher. And that was a great experience, but it was also a little bit for me, um, you know, I wasn't even 21 at that time, and and I was, I was living and working in New York, and so I was, I went back to college, and I thought, you know, maybe publishing is not for me. Maybe I'm not ready for that. Um, but then after I graduated, I ended up just by chance getting a job at the MIT Press as a temp working in the publicity department. And um, when they had an opening there after my temp job was was finished, they invited me to apply for it. So that's how I ended up working there. That was in 1990. And so I spent many years working in marketing and publicity, and it was really, really fascinating. And I ended up feeling that academic publishing was a much better fit for me than trade publishing. Yeah. So I'm curious, if you don't mind me me pushing a little bit, um, what was it that was overwhelming about the you know trade publishing that you were doing, um, and what was it that you think was like a better fit when it came to academic publishing? Well, part of it was just that I was too young to be in that in that setting. I didn't really know what I was doing, and um, I got caught up in a lot of drama because the the Barney was, you know, the the company had been sold and Barney was getting demoted to editorial director and it was his company that he founded. And so I was going out to lunch with different people who had different points of view on it. And I didn't know where I stood on everything. So except that I supported Barney so strongly. So I think it was all these sort of extra publishing things that I didn't feel quite I was ready for. And academic publishing was a much calmer environment from that perspective, where I was really able to immerse myself in books and ideas. And that's, that's where my, my home and my heart still, still are, I think. Wow. And you've been at MIT ever since. 
we have been. Yeah. Got it. So I, you know, I'm sure, you know, an editorial director, um, which is your position now at, at the press, uh, probably, you know, you have to wear a lot of hats and it's probably um, quite dynamic from day to day. Um, mm-hmm. But maybe there are, you know, and I think there are the, probably the typical things that we can imagine an editorial director does. They, you know, oversee the acquisitions editors. They guide the direction of, you know, what subjects and topics are going to be chosen. What might be some of the things that, you know, might surprise someone about, you know, some of the work that you do or some of the things that, um, you know, wouldn't come to mind immediately about your job? Sure. Yeah, I think um, there's probably a handful of things. Um, one thing that that people may not understand about academic publishing is that um, decisions about what to publish um, are very collaborative, and a lot of people are involved in those decisions. So there's absolutely nothing capricious about it. Um, and I certainly don't think of myself as a gatekeeper because we are consulting with so many other people about um, what we are considering. So I want to clarify that. I think it's important for authors in particular to understand that um, their editor is not going to be the only person making that decision. Neither is the editorial director. Um, So the projects that we consider for publication, um, they are thoroughly evaluated and vetted by peer reviewers who are experts in the field. Um, They uh, are considered by a team at the press that includes our director, the heads of marketing, editorial, design, production, finance, um, sales. And we talk through every project at some length to consider the fit for the press and whether we can make this a a successful book and we will not publish it if we don't think we can. So that's the first thing I would, I would like to clarify. The other is that, you know, editorial directors really spend a lot of time with editors trying to solve problems and helping them succeed in their jobs. So I I really enjoy doing that, um, mentoring editors and, and collaborating with them to, to succeed in their roles. So for those you know, curious authors who may be listening to this or just anyone in the industry, take us, take us behind the scenes, take us to into the room where it happens about, you know, in that conversation that you're having with those, you know, colleagues and team members that you have, what are the considerations and what are the factors? What are the, the, the discussions that are being debated? You know, and I'm, I'm sure that there's a range depending on the book, but like, what are kind of the repeated themes that you would say are going to be questions that you're going to be asking yourself before you make a determination, whether, this, you know, manuscript is appropriate for MIT or not? Sure. Um, well, there's so many things that we end up talking about in those discussions. Um, you know, uh, the smoke-filled room, I guess, but uh, you know, it's not really, of course. And, and they're the, the same things that we talk to authors about. So there's no sort of secrecy about this. It's it's what what evidence are you presenting? What argument are you deriving from it? And how consequential is this for whom? So who are the audiences that you're trying to reach? And so the discussions we have are about those things and how successful the author has been in executing their own goals for the book and whether those goals line up with something we think that our audiences are interested in. So, you know, we're, we're, a, we're a publisher that's known for certain, um, for work in certain 
certain fields and other publishers may have bigger audiences in, in other fields. And sometimes we'll direct the author elsewhere if it's not a field that we are publishing very deeply in ourselves. So sometimes it's not even a judgment or a reflection on on the work itself. It's just about the fit. Other times, you know, we think we can really help the author um, uh, make their ideas bigger and more impactful for audiences we do serve. And in that case, it's a project we want to take on because we see how we can be helpful. So that's that's interesting, that last point um, that you made, because I don't think I've thought about it in that context before. Do you find that's quite common that academics are thinking maybe too uh, restricted, you know, in a restricted sense about about their work and they're not um, dreaming big enough, uh, let's say, maybe because, I mean, I'm going to throw out a theory and feel free to tell me that it's that it's wrong. But, you know, maybe that's somewhat of what differentiates the, you know, the book from the journal article is that the journal article in general typically is more focused and has more of like a, you know, concrete start and finish, whereas a book, um, you know, had can, 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 draw much broader strokes. So is that something that you find is quite common with authors that they, they, they themselves maybe don't, um, haven't fully either appreciate themselves or been able to express the full power of their ideas and messages? Yes, I think that's exactly right, Avi. And I'd be curious to hear about whether you encounter this in your own work with authors as well. Um, but yes, I think that um, when you're thinking about whether to write a book versus an article, it's important to consider your goals. Um, if you want to present your re- research in a way that's going to move the needle quickly in your field and get the work out there so that it can be built on by others, you're probably considering a research article, publishing in a peer-reviewed journal, right? Um, and that's the right thing to do in that case. Um, but you're also thinking about um, who, you know, who the ideal audience for your work is. And I really think that a book, even a scholarly monograph, is a, is a vehicle for reaching a wider audience, for reaching people outside your field as well as within your field. And that means framing your ideas a little bit differently. It also means that you're going to do more than present your own research. You're going to engage with the state of knowledge on your topic. And that means engaging with the work of others as well in a scholarly and um, considered way and to really situate your work in a conversation with other people's work. Yeah. So I would say that, you know, the, one of the common things that comes up um, in our conversations with authors is the who cares question, right? Whereas, um, you know, I think, I think especially I blame the, the, the dissertation and the doctoral, you know, thesis for this problem in that, you know, we, we, as early career researchers just spend so many years working on our doctorate dissertation. And the whole goal there is to demonstrate and prove and show that we know how to do research. We've done a thorough uh, literature review. We've really understood the sources in depth, and then we are coming, obviously, to to to, to bring something new and novel. Whereas, I think you know, when it comes, when you make it to the big leagues, as I like to say, um, the there's a certain understanding or assumption. Then, of course, you are familiar with all of the background. Now, tell me what you have to say. What's more interesting? So, actually. Getting authors, what we find uh, the biggest, one of the biggest challenges is just getting authors to actually appreciate and, and bring to the forefront their, the novelty and their argument and stop trying to justify their place or their understanding of the field. Um, so that's, that's definitely one thing. And then the other thing is, is, you know, the who cares question of, 
you know, understanding that these books are going to be read by more than just the, um, you know, first, I would say the, the kind of uh, first level of, of colleagues, but actually by academics in, you know, in, in, in parallel fields, but also by just in, intellectually curious people who are going, who are really interested in this topic or people for whom this impacts their industry. So being able to step out of that box and think about the greater authorship, I think it's something that we, you know, we, 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 we see quite often and, and try to help our authors work through. Mm-hmm. Yep. I agree with all, all, all that you've said there. Um, I think the so what question is a really important one for authors of books to answer, and it's a hard one. Um, and uh, also foregrounding your own analysis and your own voice in a book is incredibly important. And that means the secondary literature really does have to take a backseat to your own interpretation of evidence, your own argument. Yep. Yeah, correct. Um, now let me, so you, you mentioned, you know, before about sometimes you get books that are not, you know, that might be really interesting and novel, but they're not necessarily appropriate for the press or might be better suited for a different press. Um, can you just tell us, uh, first on a high level, like what is it that you think in terms of vision and, and like your beliefs or maybe core core values that makes MIT, MIT Press special, like what makes your, you know, what you're doing special. And then maybe on a much more practical, pragmatic level, like what are actually the subject areas and topics that um, are, that you do identify as being important to the press so that potential listeners who, you know, may themselves be working on a book um, can know whether, you know, it, it's something, if what they're working on could potentially good, be a good fit or not. Sure. Um, so to the bigger sort of broader question about um, about culture, I, I would say that um, the, the books that we publish really do reflect the culture of MIT, which um, at its core is an engineering school, but is also very, very much invested in the pursuit of, of knowledge in a scientific way, in a theoretical way as well. So MIT has this sort of split personality of of being about solving problems in the real world, but also about pursuing knowledge um, in, in terms of, of science. MIT also has a very strong arts and design culture, which is uh, reflected in the press's list as well. So we publish in science and technology and computing, um, and we also publish in architecture, contemporary art, um, design, linguistics, environmental studies, economics, and a lot of social sciences fields as well. So um, I think it's a pretty broad list, but it it definitely doesn't include everything. The other thing to know about the culture of MIT is that it's a very forward-looking culture. Um, It's very much um, pursuing knowledge at the intersection of fields rather than the center of them. So where, um, you know, work can be multidisciplinary, um, that's where new ideas and discoveries tend to come from. And we publish a lot at the intersections of fields. So our marketing folks used to say, we publish books that are hard to market because we can't reach them through the sort of standard marketing that's very siloed in terms of um, uh, disciplinary interests people have. So they spill over into different different markets. So, yeah, I would say that we're looking for stuff that's cutting edge and authoritative, but also a little bit um, pushing the boundaries for sure um, of, of, you know, uh, 
conventional wisdom, established knowledge, and and what's expected. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I really appreciate about your books is is the first of all the cross disciplinary nature of them, um, but also the fact that I think it takes a serious look at how the STEM fields affect HSS and how HSS affects STEM. And I think that those are really important questions. And I think, you know, when I, when I look at, um, you know, some of the challenges um, that, you know, some of the big um, tech, um, you know, companies have been up to, ironically, like they're tech companies and they're dealing with, you know, so, so usually a, a large percentage of their staff or their, you know, are, are, are tech people yet where they get them, where they often find themselves in trouble is with the more, um, whether it be, you know, ethical or, or philosophical or moral kind of um, conundrums, which on the one hand is understandable because they are, you know, that, that is, that is innovation, that is technology. And, and that's the, the tech usually precedes the, the thought about how we want to, um, actually contain it and, and understand it and filter it. Um, but it's also becomes all that much more critical with the speed of technology um, to be able to address those questions in a more wholesome and comprehensive way than we've been doing before. So I think that there's no doubt that that's, it's not only like a nice breath of fresh air, but it's actually, in my opinion, um, super critical um, for society, you know, already and definitely in the coming years. Yes, absolutely. Um, MIT has a, a really important program in science and technology studies or science, technology and society, however you want to think about STS, which is what we call it for short. Um, but, but you know, as we were discussing with critical data studies, the whole purpose of, of um, supporting that kind of inquiry is to inform the, you know, the pursuit of scientific and technological development in a way that's more nuanced and that understands the implications and impacts and contexts of socio-technical change. So we, we also publish a lot of books in STS and um, I think I think that's a really significant um, and valuable part of what we can bring to the table in terms of, um, you know, the, the more sort of um, strictly science and technology books that we publish and, and journals that we publish as well. Yeah. Great. So I want to, I want to um, turn now to talking about, you know, what you, and by you, I mean, you know, you personally, but also the, the press, um, what you look for in a, in a strong book, a strong book proposal um, and kind of how, what best practices are for, you know, authors and researchers that might be listening to this, for how to go about um, putting together a strong book. So before we get to that, I want to ask you what qualifies for becoming a book um, and how do I make a determination as an author whether what I'm working on is more appropriate to be a book or maybe it's more appropriate to be a series of articles um, across different journals? Mm-hmm. Well, I think we touched on this a little bit earlier. I mean, part of it has to do with your goals. Um, are you trying to, books are a slow medium. It takes a while for a book to come out. So if it's important to get your research out quickly, 
you probably are going to be publishing articles. And that doesn't mean that you can't also publish a book about your research. Um, but uh, it, it's, it's crucial to bear in mind that the timeline is very different. So depending on, on your goals, um, that's one way to think about it. Length is another um, thing to think about, of course. Um, you know, do you have something to say at book length to the audience that reads books? And that's a serious nonfiction audience, probably. Um, and that's an audience that includes people within your field, but also people outside your field. Um, so so I, would, I would say those are the ways to think about book versus article. What we look for in books um, are books that are going to have real impact on their fields and beyond their fields that are going to shape and define the conversation about their topics. So the impact should be more than incremental. It should really change the direction of how we're thinking about something. Um, and, and, you know, that's, I think, a worthy goal for an author of a book. Um, certainly for an MIT press book, we'd be looking for that. Yeah, no, that's that's it's really interesting. It's a tall it's a tall order, and it's a big and but but I think I think you're right. Like there there's something about there's something about the breadth of a book, especially in an age where we are about quick hits, um, that really can take an idea and develop it over time. And that's one of the things we were talking about in our previous conversation is just kind of um, being able to develop an idea over the course of of chapters and not just uh, having a random collection of ideas. You know, I, 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 I tend to, you know, I have this experience. So tell me if you agree. Uh, when I read collected article, when I read a, a collection of articles um, on the one hand, it's like exciting in the beginning. Cause it's like, Ooh, you know, each one is going to be a different perspective and different um, idea, different. But oftentimes I find that it's just like, there's not really any um, development from the beginning to the end. And I find myself, you know, kind of putting it down in the middle or skipping around between the chapters because it's not building a greater argument wor- working towards something. So I'm not trying to um, suggest that we do away with the, with the article collections. Um, um, but I do think that it makes a lot of sense that there's certain value to being able to build up an argument and develop and, um, and, and, and give it nuance and complexity that maybe it wouldn't have in an article. Yes, I agree. Those, um, uh, you know, those through lines are really, really important. And they do represent a unique opportunity for an author to develop their ideas, um, you know, in a way that is really, you know, reflects the depth of the work that they're doing um, and, and honors that complexity and depth. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Got it. And what do you see as the, like, we talked before a little bit about um, you know, the issue with authors maybe not thinking big enough or or not expressing um, in a clear enough way the novelty of their ideas. But what are some of the other issues that you come across um, that may bring you to a no, even though that, you know, you know, that it might have potential or, you know, you, you think there's a, you know, a, a, a kernel of of, of uh, you know, truth or, or, or something 
an interesting idea, but yet still kind of make it impossible for you to receive it? Or if I flip the question on its head, what can authors do um, to best prepare themselves so that they really are kind of hitting the right mark? Sure. Well, there's so many things that can can come up that it's it's hard to choose one that's the you know dominant issue. I would say one thing that can be very challenging is um, writing with a consistent sense of who your reader is um, and carrying that through a book. Um, and that means that um, you know if you're if you're writing a book that's intended to reach people beyond your field. Um, who are not experts in your subject matter, can you do that? Um, what knowledge are those folks going to bring to the experience of reading the book? And what sort of terminology are you going to have to unpack for them or avoid um, in order to communicate clearly to those readers? What can be very helpful to some people is writing with an ideal reader in mind, whether that's a colleague outside your field or a, a friend or a relative who's who's not in your area and, um, you know, trying to write with a voice in which you would speak to that person can be very helpful. Um, but I would say that that kind of consistent um, expectation about who your reader is, is, is important for a book. Um, yeah. And would you say, and, and how would you define the readership of the press? Is it mostly, you know, academics with tenured positions at universities? Is it, or is it more broad than that? Yeah, so we publish um, we publish books for scholars and researchers. Uh, we publish true textbooks for students, um, and we also publish a lot of books for general readers that are trying to translate, um, you know, cutting edge science and um, and and scholarship for wider audiences. And so those books too are written by academics, and they're peer reviewed in just the same way that. All of our books are, but they're written to um, interest and engage and inform readerships outside of academia, outside of the author's own field. So, um, you know, I, we did a author, uh, we did a readership survey recently, and we we found out some stuff about who our readers are, and they are smart people. They they're people who tend to read a lot of books, more than ten books a year. Um, many of them do have. Um, postgraduate degrees. A lot of them do have PhDs, um, and many of them are outside the United States. Almost half of them are um, are, are based outside the U.S. So I would say our readers are, are international, and they do tend to be pretty educated. But so tell me more about that because that's really interesting. Because I think that in my conversations with some of the university presses around the states, one of the things they struggle with is both authorship and readership. Um, from outside of the U.S. Um, and so I'm curious to hear um, whether that was a concerted effort on your part or, you know, to, to, to reach broader audiences. And and what is it that, you know, is that is that part of your goals um, moving forward is to, you know, um, diversify authorship even even more or, or readership and kind of how you've handled that issue um, in, within the press? Yes, it is part of our goal um, to continue to diversify both readership and authorship. We've always had a large readership outside the U.S., and that reflects the content of what we publish. I think science, technology, and economics in particular tend to travel well. Um, the, the audience for computer science books is outside the U.S. is very large. Um, I can't tell you the number of 
um, Indian engineers, software engineers who've wanted to shake my hand because they've studied with books published by the MIT Press and that were important to them as they came up in their field. Um, so that's that's very gratifying. It's very affirming. But we do encourage authors in all fields to write with this um, larger audience in mind. Of course, we have books that are U.S. centric um, and probably need to be. But we also try intentionally to find books that have an international scope um, in terms of their subject matter and their examples and in the way that authors are thinking about who their readers are. So um so I, I think just as a core value, that would definitely be one of them that's that's essential to the MIT Press. Um, in terms of authors, we also did a survey of our authors recently to understand um, the demographic profile of the people that we're publishing and working with in our author networks. And, um, you know, we got a quite quite a good response to that that survey. I surveyed um, eleven hundred authors who published books with us in the last five years because we wanted to get a sense of our current author network, um, and the, the results were pretty much um, what we expected. Our our authorship is not as diverse as we would like it to be. We have more male authors than female authors, more authors who identify as North American and white than. Um, you know, other races or ethnicities and nationalities. Um, most of our authors, are, you know, identify as heterosexual and physically abled. So we asked all these kinds of questions. And now we have the baseline data that we need. We can repeat this survey in a few years and see whether we've made any progress uh, toward our diversity goals for our authors. So maybe we could talk about that for a minute or two. Can you tell me a little bit about what are some of the initiatives that you're putting into play so that, you know, you're, you are, you know, ensuring that when you do that second follow-up survey, um, the numbers will look different than it is, than they are now. Yeah. So we've, we've had a lot of conversations about this um, at the press and our editors have really focused on building their networks. And one of the concerns that came out of that author survey, because we also asked our authors about how they felt about being asked about their, um, how they identify in terms of things like race and ethnicity and sexuality and other questions that we asked them, age. Um, and they, you know, there was a whole range of opinions about this. Some people were very supportive of gathering this kind of data and they understood why we might want to do that. And others felt that it was, it was not appropriate to consider work on any other basis than the quality of the work itself, right? And they had real concerns about that. So I, I want to clarify for, um, for authors and prospective authors that quality is the thing that we consider when we're considering individual works, that gathering this kind of data about who you're working with is about building big, robust, and diverse networks. And that's how you get quality work, right? Because diversity and quality are, are connected in that sense, that unless you have a large and diverse network, you're not going to be looking at the best work that you possibly can. So that's been the goal of our editors, is really to build and diversify our networks of authors and our networks of reviewers, too, because we really rely on peer reviewers to help us evaluate and improve the work that we're publishing. And so it's important that they reflect diverse identities as well. Yeah. Yeah, this is definitely a, a, a big challenge. I can share that on our our side, you know, when we do um, language work, right? So this is a question we ask ourselves quite often, right? On the one hand, 
um, there is, I think we would, you know, we have this shared sense and intuition when something is written well or not written well, right? We have to make judgments about that all the time, about whether something is written well or not. Um, on the other hand, if we're too restrictive about how we define good writing or grammatically correct English writing, I think that's that can be somewhat restrictive and unfair because the way that, you know, um, English is written in the U.S. versus India versus Australia, right? It, all, it, it, it differs, and of course, among uh, EAL or English as an additional language scholar. So this is, you know, we, we, we sort of, on the one hand, push to, you know, help authors to um, express themselves as clearly as possible, but on the flip side, try not to um, impose to them, well, this is, you know, correct or incorrect English objectively in all cases, because that's also, so we've taken a model where we're, we try to be as, you know, suggestive as possible and, you know, and allow for as much, um, diversity in terms of the style of writing, um, but also focus on clarity, which is challenging because, you know, what might be clear to someone in one location or with one background may not be as clear to someone um, with a different background or, or, or um, you know, or geographic location. So anyway, I, I can empathize with trying to, um, you know, balance and find that, find the right balance um, between those values and really be as inclusive and as broad, wide of a tent as possible um, while not sacrificing, um, you know, the quality of the work that's being that's being produced. Um, but I think when it comes down to it, the way I see it is, you know, it's it's kind of like what you're saying, taking one step further. When you build those bigger networks and you're willing to think outside the box, you actually can recognize that things that we may have, you know, used to turn around and say, well, this is not, you know, because I'm not used to it, does not isn't a good reason to say it's not of high quality, right? And to 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 kind of come in with a little bit more of an open mind about what we're interested in, what we're willing to consider. Um, I think that's what's important in the end of the day. Yes, that's what's important. And that's what, that's what produces quality also, I would say. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's um, yeah. Cause I think, I think we would all agree. We'd want the best research to be, to be out there, but it's just a question of how do we get there? Now I want to ask you about um, this term, which is, which I've heard, which is becoming more and more popular called author platform. Um, mm -hmm. And for those who aren't familiar, I will do my best to define it. Feel free to uh, correct me. Um, but uh, author platform are the you know the, the 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 places, whether digital or in person, where the author is present and active, um, which can help them spread their message. And I think that one of the things that maybe some authors who have published previously, but maybe haven't published recently, um, you know, haven't some may not have under have, have seen this is that authors are a big part now of getting their works out. So whereas, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there's, you know, basically you, you drop off your manuscript, obviously work with the editors, get it reviewed, and then, you know, wait to see the, you know, what the sales were. Now you actually, um, there's, a, there's a sort of, at very least implied expectation um, that the authors are going to be part of the marketing and, um, you know, dissemination process. That doesn't mean they need to go and ship the books from the warehouse, but it does mean that they need to be sharing, um, you know, on their, on their platform. So maybe talk about to what extent that's important, uh, the author platform, and what do you recommend to authors about how to go about um, building such a platform? 
Sure. Well, thank you first for the for the definition, because I think sometimes when we talk about our other platform these days, we think it's only about social media and how many followers you have. Um, and I think the broader definition is really helpful because an author's platform really is about public engagement. And are you willing to engage with the public and to talk about ideas in public forums? And that could be, you know, it does not have to be social media. It could be, um, are you somebody who publishes and um, presents about your work um, and gives talks and um, writes back to people who write to you? I mean, if you think about somebody like Noam Chomsky um, and the, you know, you wouldn't think about his author platform. You would think about the fact that Noam Chomsky's published you know, so much original research and so many books, um, you know, on linguistics and on other topics as well, and who actually writes back to people when they write to him, you know, so he's a public intellectual, he gives talks. And so that's a platform too, then, and one that's really, really worth cultivating. If you're not a, a, a person who spends a lot of time on social media, I don't think it has to be social media. So, um, so yes, a, an author's platform is about um, how they like to engage with with the wider public, and it is really important. Um, I would say that um, partnership throughout the process is something that we really emphasize at the MIT Press. It's the approach that we take to working with authors and to publishing books and journals too. Um, is that is that we we offer a partnership model. And so we do want to collaborate with authors to get their ideas out there. Um, a platform is something we're going to help them build. If they have one already, that's great because we can build on that. So whatever it is, we will um, we will provide more platforms and we will build on the ones that authors have already established. Um, I, wouldn't, um, I wouldn't insist that authors... Um, build platforms in spaces where they're not comfortable um, as scholars and as researchers. I think um, they should, you know, not feel that they have to open a Twitter account just because they want to publish a book or something like that. Um, so we'll work with them wherever their platforms are and we'll help them to expand those platforms and reach more readers with their ideas. Yeah, I, you know, it, it always amazes me about, you know, like something as simple as an email listserv digest, right, which is like one of the most old fashioned things on the Internet, um, but how much power it has in the academic context. So, you know, HNET and, and other similar lists can be a really great way to get things out there. And it doesn't require it. It, it require it requires effort. I don't think that we should downplay it. It requires a certain amount of engagement and being there, not just to spread your own word, but to react and respond to others, to engage in dialogue. So that's always something that I, you know, encourage um, academics to do. But I think you're right that it's not a matter of trying to, you know, open up every social platform that you want. In fact, you will you will most likely fail if you do that. Um, you know, and, and and I think different what what amazes me is different both different scholars have found different like platforms that work better for them and also different industries. So like I've seen biology, for example, is really strong on Twitter, which I never would have guessed because it's like, you know, there's complex, nuanced ideas in Twitter, right? We're bound by a certain amount of characters. Um, I've seen, you know, I've seen LinkedIn um, become more popular among academics, but then, but then you're right. It's not just about socials. It's about the, it's about conferences. It's about um, not being shy to share your ideas and opinion and, 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 and share it with others. Um, And, and consistent, and a certain level of consistency Um, being there and present on an ongoing fashion and not just, you know, kind of hopping on to, 
to to dump your new um uh uh you know publication and then and then kind of go AWOL until the next time you have a publication. So um you know I, I have heard from publishers and I, I don't you know I don't know if you'd go this far that that they do consider um, platforms as a as one of the components in making determinations about about the book. And I don't think it's the major component, um, but I think it's something that is we'd be we, we it's worth um, uh, uh, taking into consideration and not 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 forgetting about. So how how do have you have you found like with the authors that you're working with are there specific platforms that they feel more comfortable with or that seem to be popular in, you know, the fields that MIT Press is, is working on? Sure. I mean, I think, you know, conferences are really important to some authors and that's, that's where you, uh, you know, um, get your work out. It's not so much about journals as it is about conferences. That's definitely true in computer science, for example. Um, and so people, and, and people really use that platform and others to not just to present their research and talk about it, but to improve it and and shape their thinking and think about how to frame the next set of questions. And so I think that kind of engagement is really valuable too. Um, that that is a conversation. It is a dialogue with your with your peers and your colleagues. Um, a lot of our authors are on Twitter uh, or Facebook or LinkedIn, as you said, and um, others, you know, others have podcasts um, where they <laughs> like like this one, um, where they they develop their their own thinking in, in conversation with other people whose ideas they're interested in. So I think there's a lot of options for for platform um, building. Yes, I, I'm definitely. I, I, as I it doesn't need to be said, I, I'm definitely the, a, a, a podcast fan. Um, mm-hmm. I am present on some of the others, but I find that this form of communication really allows for to engage in a, in a deeper way um, than some of the other sort of quick hitting social platforms. So, you know, anyone who wants to start, a, uh, you know, is considering a podcast, uh, feel free to, to reach out. Happy to help. Um, okay. I, I, I'm wary of time here, but I do want to get your, I do want to get your take on on a few other really important topics. Um, specifically, I want to discuss open access. So give me your 60 second elevator um, talk on what, how you define or, or, or see open access um, for those who may not be as familiar um, and how it relates to your work at the press. Sure. Okay. Well, open access is really important at the MIT Press. Um, we've been publishing work openly for many, many years now, since the 1990s. Um, open access is a digital distribution model for research, um, and that includes um articles that are published in peer-reviewed journals. It also includes books. Um, And the distribution model with open access is that there are no price barriers. So the work is free to read, free often to download and to use in other ways. So open access works come without price restrictions, but they also come without some of the restrictions on use that copyrighted works might otherwise have. So with a copyrighted work, you might be constrained from using that work without permission in your own work. If you wanted to reproduce it in your own work or distribute it to your students, you would have to get permission. Maybe you'd have to pay something to do that. With open access works, you might not have to get permission or to pay um, to reuse that work in your own work or to distribute it to others. So um, I guess that's my quick definition. Yeah, got it. And 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 I'm curious to hear from you. You know, I, 
open access, uh, you know, was was started really in Europe and and took on was taken on quite quickly in many European countries. The U.S. Mm-hmm. seems to be a couple of years behind. I know that there was, a, you know, the president did make a declaration about funded research um, mm-hmm. being, you know, required to be open. So that definitely will push things by 2026. So that definitely will push things in the open access direction. Um, why do you think it's caught on? faster in Europe? Do you think we're going to, you know, the U.S. will catch up? And what do you attribute that those sort of differences to? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I actually asked um, chat GPT that question because I didn't know the <laughs> answer. I'm curious to see what an AI would say about it. And the answer I got back from chat GPT, I thought was pretty good, which is that, um, it, you know, in both the U.S. And, and Europe, a lot of research is government funded. And Um, governments in Europe are particularly interested in making sure that the public has access to that research that they have supported through tax dollars. That's also increasingly true, as you say, in the U.S. So I do think the U.S. will get on board with this fully. But according to ChatGPT, the U.S. has a a competing culture of proprietary information that can be monetized. And um, so those two things are sometimes in conflict. And maybe um, copyright has a, a stronger footing even in in the research world in the U.S. um, than it does elsewhere. You know, I'm not sure that's completely true, um, that this is a hard divide. So I think it's an ongoing um, struggle. It is a very contested area because there's a lot of money to be made, um, you know, um, on publishing research, especially in, in the scientific literature and the journals literature. And it's the big publishers who are very dominant. They're not university presses. Um, yeah. 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 It's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's probably a more complicated issue than anyone really expected at the outset. Um, you know, and, and I think that, you know, it's, it, it reminds me of like when they, when they build a, you know, when they build a train in your neighborhood, it's like, you know, for the, for those years when it's being built, it's just like, everything seems to be a mess and it's complicated and, and, and no one really knows how it works. And eventually I think it will be, you know, the, the, there'll be some real good that comes out of it. And already there's been some real good that comes out of it. But I think for some scholars, the frustration of the interim period um, and not knowing necessarily how to navigate that properly mm-hmm. or when and how they should be, um, you know, publishing OA or how they can go about it um, is, uh, you know, is, is, is quite challenging. So I'm curious, I, I do want to hear from you though about like, open access for books. It, it, it is a little bit different, I think, than the, you know, open access for, for the journal articles that you mentioned differently. So do you think that for books, like open access is, is and should be the new standard? Or do you think it's like a nice kind of add on for those who can afford it? Yes. So um, open access is something we are trying to offer for all of our scholarly books. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, we have a lot of open access journals too, I should I should say. Um, but for scholarly books, we've tried to roll out this model called D2O, and that refers to direct to open. Um, direct is, is our digital platform for, for our books. And for scholarly books, um, you know, the real, the real hurdle really is funding because books take a lot of resources to develop. Obviously, authors invest a lot in writing books, a lot of time and a lot of their own labor. Um, And then publishers invest a lot in developing those books for publication. We invest in editorial development, in design, in production, in producing print editions, which we do for all of our books, including open access books, Um, and in, in marketing and promoting and distributing 
um, and creating met metadata for, for those books. So the model that we have now for scholarly books at the MIT Press is we will publish a print edition of your book and we will produce and market it in exactly the same way that we always have um, and, and that we do for all of our books. If you're interested in having your book be open, um, we have a funding model for that now that um, that asks libraries to support this open access collection and subscribe to it and help to pay for it. So we're, we're not asking authors to fund it. Um, and if they're interested in having an open access edition, in addition to a print edition, that's something we can increasingly offer. Um, Got it. And, so, yeah. yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, no. And I, th I think a lot of authors are really interested in that because um, otherwise your work is, um, potentially confined to people who have access to well-funded um, academic libraries, right? And that's a pretty small audience. Um, and so if you're interested in having a greater impact than that, open access is a really appealing model. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the data from what I've seen really bears that out, that the amount of, you know, reads, downloads, um, you know, re, re uh, you know, citations from open access literature is, I mean, you can't even compare it to, um, to the traditional model. So there's no doubt mm -hmm. that it's getting to more people, more people are consuming it and, you know, and, and hopefully using it for good. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I'm just curious about the libraries. So are they, is this like a consortium where the libraries are kind of banding together to pay for the, to help sub, the subsidies for open access, or is it the library of the institution of the author of the individual author who's publishing the book? Oh, good question. So, um, you know, the MIT Press Direct platform contains lots of our books in digital form. This is um, something that we've been marketing to libraries around the world, mostly academic libraries, but also some public libraries as well. And they've they've um, subscribed to our collection. Um, and for an additional fee, they can support the opening up of books on this platform as well. So um, if we have enough libraries sign on for that additional um, open access um component, then we can afford to open up all of our new scholarly books published each year. Um, so it's not just the author's own institution. It's a global network of libraries who are supporting open access at the MIT Press and, and other places because it aligns with their values. Yeah, I think that's really great because that, first of all, it spreads that cost over, you know, the more libraries that join, I imagine the cheaper it can become. Um, mm -hmm. which is great. And also libraries maybe have a little bit more power to be able to determine which collections they want to support or not, as opposed mm -hmm. to the kind of, you know, bundle package where you kind of have to take everything or nothing here. It's maybe gives them a little bit more power to decide, well, what's really important to the researchers at my institution. Um, so I like that, that model. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. I, I want to, I want to wrap things up, but I do. And, and I know that we touched on some of the DEI um, initiatives that you were working on, um, earlier in the conversation, but I just wanted to give you uh, the opportunity before we go to talk if there's anything that we didn't discuss, maybe internally in terms of in terms of your own staff um, or things that you're working on um, that you think will 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 bear fruit in the years to come. Sure. Well, we talked a little bit about diversifying um, author networks and reviewer networks, and that's something you can do relatively quickly because those are networks that we're constantly building. Um, 
it's a little bit harder to diversify your staff at a university press or at a publishing company because your staff doesn't turn over as quickly. But we've also been very focused on um, building diversity in our own staff. And we think that's really important to do. So if you um, if you Google MIT Press idea plan, you can see a very detailed plan for inclusion, diversity, equity, and accessibility with many different components and a, and an accountability tracker that shows our progress towards a bunch of different goals related to equity and inclusion and diversity and accessibility. Um, one of those things has to do with hiring um, and making sure that we have a diverse staff. Um, others have to do with compensation, with um, retention of staff. Um, others have to do um, with uh, how we promote people internally and consider promotion requests. So there's a lot of different initiatives going on, um, and some have to do with our internal staffing and some have to do with um, external networks. But those are the main components, yeah. Got it, got it. Tisa, this has been really um, insightful and informative um, and interesting. So thank you so much for taking the time from your morning um, I'm sure you've got a lot of responsibilities on your plate. So I appreciate you carving out the time for, for the conversation with me, for the readers. Um, I know that I learned a lot and, and I like to think that I know this industry. So, um, so definitely, um, I'm sure there was a ton of value um, that, that was conveyed for, for our audience, for our, for our, I think I used the word readers, but I meant listeners. I guess I'm in the book. I'm in the book mind. Um, so thank you for taking the time to, to chat with me today. Um, and uh, yeah, I hope that this is the beginning of, of, of ongoing conversations, both with yourself and colleagues, you know, about how to, how to always be thinking forward thinking, um, in, uh, in academic publishing. Thank you so much for having me, Avi. I really enjoyed it. And thanks for your great questions. Pleasure. All right. Till next time. Thank you so much for joining us on the scholarly communications podcast. 